Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Uh, today, we are lucky to have with us uh, Brian Brewer. Uh, Brian is a uh, longtime uh, active participant in the Seattle startup community. He helps a lot of people with their business plans. Uh, he also uh, recently launched a, a, a cool thing called the Minimum Fundable Company Test. And uh, Brian, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Joe. Nice to be here with you and Mike. So. For sure. Hey, so uh, t- talk to us. Uh, the, the, the latest initiative you've been working on is this thing called the Minimum Fundable Company Test. Exactly. Well, you know, um, I- I'll just tell a, a brief story about how this got started. A couple of years ago, I was doing a, a coaching group for startup CEOs. We'd meet uh, a couple times a month, uh, mostly for um, CEOs who are where their startups were on the path to funding. And they would, they would often ask me, Brian, how, how fundable is my company? And I would always say, it depends. And they got tired of hearing that after a while. And they said, come on, you can do better than that. So I went home one afternoon and um, sat down and just fleshed out what, what are investors really looking for? What, what, you know, uh, uh, what are the basic things in a pitch deck? Uh, and how would I rate those in terms of um, fundability? So I came up with this. Uh, first, it was in the spreadsheet form. And uh, recently, earlier this year, we put it online. It's available at uh, mfctest.com for minimum fundable company test. And I call it the, the, the minimum fundable company. The concept there is it's, it's similar to the, um, the minimum viable product that is a well-used concept uh, and practice in product development. The idea there is you, you create uh, just the minimum amount of a product that you need in order to get into the marketplace and start getting feedback from potential customers. And then once based on that feedback, then you can flesh out other product features or pivot or change your direction or whatever. And so my idea here was what, what do you, what's the sort of the minimum um, that you need in order to get in front of investors? So that's what this test is really all about. It's a, it's on a rating scale from zero to a hundred and there are five categories, the startup viability, which is all about your product and how your business stage, and then business model, market strategy, uh, management, and, and the deal for investors. And so, there's a, so what I recommend is that you score at least 50% in each of those five categories. And the, you, if you go online, the test is free, by the way. Um, you have to sign up with your email or a social media account. And you, you can create an account. You can come back and take the test later, fill it in, uh, to, you know, do multiple tests. It's a lot of functionality on the site. And the idea is if you, you know, it's, it's a scoring scale based on strictly on my, uh, you know, 10 plus years of seeing companies pitch to angel investors. And what, what have I noticed that what's the sort of the minimum that you need before investors will be interested in you? So that, that's the essence of the test. Yeah, do you mind? Can we run through those those points and kind of talk about what they each mean? I'd love to oh, kind of kind of think through the process with you. Absolutely. You well, the first the first the first category or, or factor that I call a fundability factor is what I call startup viability, and this is this is kind of where you know and the whole structure here um, really uh, kind of mirrors what most people put in their pitch deck when they do a, a ten minute pitch to investors. It's kind of the same flow, same structure. So you start out with your business description, how, how, how well are you able to describe this and people understand it. The, the next question has to do with uh, the problem-solution match. Is, it, is, it, is there a really good 
uh, match between you know uh, the problem that you're trying to solve and the solution that you're offering. I remember, uh, you know, uh, Joe, you probably know Rick Lefave, uh, VC here, longtime VC in town. He's yep. he's moved to Idaho now, I think. I heard him talk once, and he was uh, talking to um, some startups and saying, he says, if you can nail the problem solution match and make that really fit well and, and, and be able to describe that well, you're halfway there. And, and I, I believe him, too, that uh, that's where, you know, that's where many startups uh, just miss the mark. They're, they're not solving uh, um, a problem well enough. So anyway, the next, the third question, uh, and by the way, this is all multiple choice on, on, the, te- on the MFC test, which is, I'll just say it again, it's available at mfctest.com. Uh, the, the third one is market validation. And that's, you know, the next thing you do, you have your idea, you go out and try to get some focus groups or feedback from, uh, you know, the, the market about is, is this valid? Uh, your, if your, is your solution valid? Is, is, will people, do people say they want this and will they buy it? And then finally, and the fourth one, and this one counts the, for the most points in this category is your business stage. All the way, you know, starting from idea all the way up to having paying customers. And of course, if you have paying customers who are paying the full price, then you have basically achieved market validation. So that's that's the first area. That's that's kind of where um, most uh, startup CEOs uh, start when they're pitching their company, and that's what investors want to hear first. They want to know, you know, basically, does this does this make sense? Are people going to buy this? That, that that's what that that's the first question I think investors want to get an answer to before they before they listen to the, so, uh, the so, rest, rest of the pitch. So you're thinking is this uh, is this problem a real problem something that people actually have and is the solution does it seem adequate does it seem like it actually solves the problem and if you if you can if you can say yes to those things then you get to check that first box. Exactly. Or yeah. Well, it's all it's all in our, It's not it's not a checkbox per se. It's more of a rating scale. Ah. So, for example, um, it, let's say, let's look at uh, the market validation question. So uh, it reads: based on surveys, focus groups, customer intentions, or actual sales, which of the following best describes how customers respond to your solution? And you get zero if you don't have any responses yet. So so you can score yourself and. Um, you get, and it always goes, you know, one up to wildly positive responses. You get three points for that. So well, that's, that's kind of a good question uh, to ask. Not not necessarily because of the answer that you get, but because I think a lot of startup entrepreneurs don't necessarily get a lot of feedback from people before they decide to to go uh, pursue a, partic- a particular project. I know I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. Like so, so just it, asking them, saying, "Hey, we need you to answer a question," you know. Out of all the people you've asked about this, what are, what's their response? You may find some of those entrepreneurs say, "Well, I haven't really asked that many people yeah. yet." Well, um, and that's that's a red flag for investors when you yeah, haven't talked yeah. to customers. <laughs> so, uh, so if anything, the question is not just not just about getting the answer, but also about prompting you to to make sure that you're in a position to even be able to answer the question. Um, exactly, Mike. And 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 overall, the the test has twenty questions. Some of them have subparts to them as well. So I think it's about twenty eight responses you need to make in order to see your final results. But what the, the, the key piece of feedback I've gotten from the hundreds of people who've taken this so far, and I tested this with a lot of folks before we put it online as well, is that it really shows you what you need to work on. And, and almost kind of like gives, shows you a little bit of a path to what you need to do to get your startup to a, a point where it's fundable and where investors will be interested. 
So it's interesting to think um, about how eager some entrepreneurs are to get the funding and how they're thinking, well, what's the minimum that I need to reach before I can start asking people for money, uh, you know, with a straight face. Um, but in reality, you know, some, some, another way to look at it would be, you know, trying to put that, some people use a strategy where they're trying to put off uh, raising money as long as possible so that they can go to the investors with something that's more valuable. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to, I guess, the, the upshot of raising money early would be, I guess, you accelerate development and you get things up and running and, and you're able to maybe spread the risk out a little earlier. Um, but then, you know, the, the other alternative is, you know, maybe, maybe not focusing on, on when is the earliest I can ask for money, but rather, you know, when's the latest I can ask for money. It'd be interesting to, to look at the analysis from that side as well. You know, how, how, how long can I wait before I ask for money? Absolutely. That, that works. And, and as, as we all know, uh, you know, the longer you can bootstrap your company and not raise money and still, uh, you know, ha- maintain momentum and keep it moving forward, that does, you know, you, you're able to preserve more equity for the founders uh, is primarily what it does. And then when you do go out to raise money, you'll, be, uh, you'll have more traction and you should be able to get a higher valuation. Yes. Uh, better better terms. So so sure, but but in my experience, um, many entrepreneurs uh, don't have that luxury of waiting. They you know they're they're already bootstrapped out, right? Tapped right. out right. their friends and family and their and their home equity line of credit and their and the spouse is saying, uh, hey hey, come on, we gotta this, we can't keep doing this. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that makes sense. So I guess we'll go through the, some of the other steps too, but I'm curious to know where um, the business idea as a whole fits into this analysis in, in, in the, the thought being that some some businesses, uh, the problem that they're trying to solve or the market that they're going after, um, you know, may be perfectly viable, but may not be the type of business that's likely to, to interest investors, maybe because it's a cash flow kind of business where, where there's not an exit on the horizon um, or, you know, more traditional business that doesn't fit within the sort of build it and sell it off kind of model. Um, how does that, how does the business model itself fit into the, the, um, the questions that you ask? Well, that's a great question, Mike. Um, the, the, like I said, the, comp- the, the test has five, um, five factors, five sections. And the, and the last one is called the deal. And that's uh, for a high growth company that measures things like what your revenue and, and um, income is going to look like over in five years you know, what's the investor ownership split, uh, your milestones, your ROI potential, and so forth. But after I developed this, I realized that uh, I, I have clients and I, I know investors who, who do invest in cash flow businesses. And, and so all these factors about, you know, a high growth company, the deal factors don't apply there. And so I created, so when you take the test, you can choose up front whether it's a high growth company like we've been discussing, or a cash flow business. And then when you get to the deal section, there are different set of questions about the deal, which will have to do rate on rate of return, uh, you know, the timing of returns, uh, security of capital, uh, uh, ability to get out of the deal, things like that. Hey, hey, Brian, so have you had, um, I mean, I totally understand the utility of this to somebody who's got a company, that, uh, but what about an investor who are, who's thinking about investing in a company? Have you seen investors use it to sort of evaluate the, whether they think the company they're considering an invest, investment in is a is a good investment? Absolutely, yes. It works both ways, uh, and so investors have said, you know, uh, I've vetted this with a number of uh, experienced investors, and they say, yeah, this is the kind of things that we're, we rate companies on. Of course, there are other intangible factors that this, this test doesn't cover, 
um, I tried to keep this very much in the realm of uh, facts and metrics rather than opinions or uh, you know just judgment calls. There are only like two or three questions on here that are that I would say are opinions or judgments. Everything else is: Do you have is this is this a fact about your company or what's your metric? There are, about half the questions are numeric based. You know, these first ones I talked about are more a little softer questions. But then get into business model. We talk about market size, market growth rate, your your gross margin percentage. Those are all numbers number based. Um, I also uh, have an Interesting one. One question that kind of stumps people sometimes. That that, but it's also a very good learning experience. Is in the market strategy section. I have a, a question about what is your marketing efficiency. And a lot of I, my experience, in my experience, a lot of startup CEOs at this stage don't pay a lot of attention to that. And what I what I mean by marketing efficiency is, you know, how what kind of revenue are you generating for your marketing dollars? And it's basically your uh, customer lifetime value divided by your customer acquisition cost. And because either of those metrics, your lifetime value or your acquisition cost, don't have much meaning by themselves. It's only in relation to each other that, that it, you can tell how efficient your marketing is going to be. Um, it, might be I, it might be kind of a tough thing for early stage companies to, to even uh, measure, right? I mean, I don't know if you have any advice for folks on how to – do that maybe the answer is you just have to get out there and start selling but for things like subscription services i think like myself uh, based on my experiences sometimes i just have to guess at what i think the lifetime value of a customer will be because until the product launches it's hard to know what the churn rate is going to be and and how long people will stay subscribed well Um, it's tough obviously yes if you don't have the data if you're not in the marketplace yet uh you have to make uh you, you know do projections or estimates and but and in this case, uh, I think you know investors realize that they, that you know no one they're not um, expecting you to predict the future. What's most important here is that you is that you've you've done an analysis of those of those metrics, and you've made your best estimate, and you understand the relationship, and you're able to speak to that, and and you, and you can use that information to influence your business decisions. That's what investors are looking for, to to know that you you know you're aware of that, and that you understand the the value of looking at those numbers. Yeah, it also seems like it hones in on a very specific uh, reason why people might want to raise money and, and a reason why investors m- might understand the need for, for, the, uh, for the fundraising. Like if, if you do have a business that's in a situation where your, your cost of acquiring a customer is a lot lower than your cost or it is a lot lower than your lifetime value of the customer, but it's just a matter of having to fund that marketing, all of a sudden your proposition to the investor makes sense in a different way because you're saying, you know, hey, you're not paying for development. You're not paying for, you know, sort of random things that may happen in the future. We just need more money to put more customers in the top of this funnel and we need you to help. That that becomes an easier, well, I don't know if it's an easier pitch, but at least it's a very specific type of pitch. Well, it's more attractive to investors if, because if, if you've got the, I mean, basically that has to do with business stage. You, if you've got the product in the marketplace, you've you know you've mitigated the product development risk, which is a, a huge risk for early stage investors. We've had um, we've had um, BJ Lackland was on uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about sure. Ledger Capital. I don't know how familiar you are with their business very model, familiar. but I'm very curious. Familiar. You know, does your model kind of take into account the options like that for folks? Um, well, it seems uh, like their, their criteria a, is a bit different. Not exactly. Uh, you know they they require that you have a SaaS recurring revenue model, and 
Uh, and so that's, you know, there are many companies that don't have that. Um, actually, you know, I, I was uh, in conversation of, uh, um, last month with someone else from Lighter Capital, and we were talking about creating, um, you know, a different uh, set of deal, ter- you know, deal questions at the end. So for a revenue loan um, opportunity. Um, so yeah, it's yeah, it seems like it's kind of a different animal in terms of what would appeal to an investor. That's a totally different kind of investor, um, and the things that wouldn't necessarily entice a, a typical venture uh, investment might work really well for for the uh, revenue loan right the revenue loan is more akin to a cash flow business because the uh, you know the the payback of the loan is coming out of the top line revenue and so the cash flow there is critical it's not building the value in the company it's just generating the cash right right so what's the so what drove your your motivation I, I know you've uh, you've worked with lots of companies in an advisory capacity what, what kind of um, made you decide to build this thing and and, uh, and put it on the web well, um, two reasons. One, I wanted to put this information out there so that people could benefit from, uh, especially very early stage entrepreneurs, so so that they could see what it is they have to do. What what are what you know what portions of their business do they need to develop in order to get to the point where investors would consider that uh, investing. And and secondly, to be frank, it's a lead generation tool. You know, I I you, once you sign up here, I'll you know you you'll be receiving some email stuff from me, and I keep people posted about what I'm doing. So That's great. So let's talk about what you are doing. Tell us about the types of services that you that you provide to startups. Are you you are a advisor, a, a mentor? What, what's the what's the typical engagement with a startup look like? Well, I, there's there's several ways, it, and it just depends on what the um, you know the needs of the startup are uh, traditionally what I've been doing most mostly in my career for the past ten plus years in this has been uh, finding clients who have a good business um, uh, started or an idea or they're in prototype stage or whatever and they need a business plan and they need a financial projections and an executive summary and a pitch deck those are the four main documents that you, you need to have from a business point of view to go out and raise money. Of course, you need to have the securities uh, documents and that's where people like you and Joe come in. Uh, so I, you know, I do that as a service, uh, off, you know, because typically some entrepreneurs, um, it, I mean, frankly, it's usually better if the founder or someone on the team writes, does all these uh, documents themselves because then they're more intimately um, knowledgeable about what they're presenting to investors. But there are certain cases where people either don't have the time to do it or they don't or they don't have the skills or they want a or they want a really um, high, highly professional uh, look and polish on the on the materials that they're going to present. So I engage with folks on a on a usually a flat fee basis uh, to to create those documents or I'll do portions of that. Sometimes people just want help with their pitch deck. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of pitch deck, uh, what I call investor pitch makeovers, um, or I'll build a financial model for someone. That's that's not usually the case. It's usually more the the, the whole package. So that's one way, Mike, that I engage with um, uh, folks in the startup world. I also do coaching. Um, I do uh, I'll do one on one coaching and do that uh, on an hourly basis for people who just need specific guidance about uh, certain things. And then I'm also have started. Uh, I'm in the process of starting, I should say, and I, it'll be up and running uh, fully within a few weeks. I started an online coaching group for startups, and we it's we meet uh, right now. I'm in sort of beta, beta test doing this with just a handful of entrepreneurs 
to just to kind of shake it down and see how this process works. But we get online um, uh, twice a month for an hour or so, and I, you know, I'll cover uh, certain topics that uh, or respond to specific questions, and it's more about getting. Uh, it's a chance for uh, a founder to get their, you know, to deepen their knowledge, and and but also to get their specific questions answered. And so I, uh, you know, like I, we did a um, did a webcast on this uh, just yesterday, and we we focused on building your board of advisors, and people had a lot of questions about that. Uh, but but we all, it's really any, it's ask me anything is what I is what I like to uh, how I like to position it because. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a wealth of knowledge and insight about how this process works. And if you've never done it before, it can really help to have a, a coach or guide to, along the way. Yeah, well, uh, since we've got you here, I think I'll take advantage of the fact that uh, that we've got, we've got your attention for a bit. Tell us, it, it sounds like you know a lot about what makes a good pitch deck. You've worked on lots of them. Do you have any advice for startups that are working on a pitch deck? Any yes. Tip, tips, <laughs> tips, uh, <laughs> words of wisdom. Oh, the by far the you know the the biggest uh, advice, the best of you know the most important advice I could give would be keep it simple. Um, you know, it, it. I don't know. You've probably seen a lot of pitches. I know Joe has. You know, you've seen you see founders get up and they get so excited about their their new business and their it's their baby, so to speak. And they're so excited and they want to tell all about it and all the details and and they don't they forget that investors have a limited attention span. Well, well anybody does. You know, if you hear a 10 minutes uh, talk or speech, you're only going to remember a few things from that speech even uh, half a day later. And so the the most important thing is to keep your pitch simple and to just drive home, uh, you know, have two or three key points that you want and people to remember. And also do things so that that's one piece of advice, Mike, is to you know is to keep it simple and make sure that your explanation of things is uh, not too technical or not too detailed, so people can basically get what your business is about. Another piece of advice is is to um, if you can, if it's possible, is to try to weave some kind of uh, story or uh, anecdote or some kind of emotional element into your pitch, whether it's about your customers or the product or your own journey as a, as a founder, because we all relate, to, you know, we relate to stories and that's how people um, remember things and, and retain the information. And that's how, and, and, and as we all know, or I hope we all know, that angel investors uh, make decisions based partly on the viability of the business and all the metrics and all the things that, you know, I cover here in the MFC test, but they, because it's a personal decision, they don't have to, uh, you know, they're not reporting to an investment committee or anything like that, except maybe their spouse. Uh, they, they make the decisions based on their own personal preferences. And so that's why it's important to, to uh, do something that's memorable and personal and, and to present yourself as likable and trustworthy. That's, that's another uh, key thing that's um, not not too hard to learn how to do. To, to be honest, if you get if you get the right coaching. So those are a couple of tips off the top of my head. Um, there's lots of others. There's so many mistakes that people <laughs> make when they do this. Uh, one of my favorite uh, no nos is 
whenever you're presenting your financial projections, please, please do not use the word conservative. It's so overused, and it's just a, it's, it's literally a groaner when someone says, oh, my projections are conservative, because we all know the numbers are just estimates. And, you know, the, the real purpose of doing financial projections is not to have them conservative or optimistic or whatever. It's, it's basically to show as a founder that you're able to plan, that you can project out into the future for, you know, for 48 or 60 months, you know, what, what you think things are going to look like. But what, what's really important there is not that you're trying to predict the future. It's that you are, you're demonstrating an understanding of the metrics of what drives your company's, uh, financials you know what are the key metrics in your type of business you know if you're in manufacturing what about it's your cost of goods and maybe your distribution uh, channel if you're um, you know if you're a SaaS product it's your recurring revenue rates and your churn rate and your those kinds of things um, if you're you know th- that's what that's what needs to be built into in detail in your financial projections and you need to be able to just speak to those because investors are going to make their own assumptions about what they think your numbers are really going to look like. Right, right. One of my pet peeves that I see in, in pitches is is when the entrepreneur is trying to talk about market size and talks about the overall size of the market, and then then proceeds to say, "And you know, we think we could once we capture five percent of this market, that's you know X billions of dollars." Precisely. Without without any kind of uh, acknowledgement for the fact that capturing five percent of the entire market is an extremely difficult feat. You know, like so, it just kind of makes it seem like, oh well, without any doubt, if we come in, we'll definitely capture you know yeah. this this percentage. And it's um, you know, I mean, it's good. I, I I think it's important to to point out the size of the overall market, but it always strikes me as kind of naive when entrepreneurs jump to the conclusion that they will somehow be entitled to some large percentage of that market or even a small percentage of that market yeah, without, without justifying how they're going to do it. Precisely, and and not, and not only justify, but demonstrating in detail how you're going to spend the marketing dollars, and and show some metrics about how those marketing dollars turn into revenue. That's uh, that's what because that's how you run a business, and that's what investors want to see that in the projection stage that you understand that process and that you under, you understand the relationship, so you can manipulate the you know the levers of your financial engine to maximize the the growth and the profit. Yeah, one one of the things that I uh, that I think is helpful for people when they're pitching, I like your reaction on this, Brian. Is um, I think I've seen a lot of people just kind of skip. They they start talking about what their cool thing is, and that's fun. But without the context of what, without the context of the problem, uh, it, it can be kind of totally uh, sort of not understandable. And so I, I've what I what I think is a helpful kind of pitch. You know, approach is just one. Make sure people really understand the problem that you're talking about for sure. for, first. And if you do a good job with that, frequently it's almost like you're almost done by that point. If you can describe <laughs> the problem sufficiently enough, then then people will be nodding their heads, and then and then you'll be able to say, "Well, and here's here's how we solve the problem." And everyone will go, "Oh yeah, I totally get it." You know what I mean? But it's frequently I see people just dive into something, and then without the context of what what problem is being trying to be solved, it's just kind of confusing and, and not very helpful. I, I totally agree, and that's. Uh... That's why I focus in the MFC test. One of the one of the questions here is about this problem solution match and and how does it not not a, not what you think about it, but what other people think about it. Right, right. Nothing, it, sounds, it sounds Brian. It sounds like you really. I mean, you've been doing this. How many how many years have you been? Oh, at least ten or more. Yeah. What'd you do before that, Brian? Oh, geez. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always think it's kind of fun. Look, I, I always think it's kind of fun to kind of like, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of what, how you got your career started and stuff well, like here's that. A, here's a good story. I, 
I arrived in uh, the Seattle area by, by a rather unique means of transportation that not many other people can claim. Okay. <laughs> I sailed into Puget Sound on the bridge of an aircraft carrier. Oh, okay. Yeah, back when I was in the Navy many, many decades ago. Uh, and that's how I originally arrived in the Seattle area. The, the, the ship went in dry dock at Bremerton, and I stayed here a year and, and met folks. And then when I got out of the Navy, I came back here and have been here ever since. Um, uh, my early career was uh, a lot in communications and writing and technical writing. I did a lot of um, writing and of technical material and marketing material and wrote several books and wrote numerous uh, hundreds of magazine articles, mostly about technology and business. And then I then the middle career got got involved in uh, working at startup companies and and doing various you know various tasks like you wear many hats at startups, and mostly in I'd say sales and marketing and product development. I did all those kinds of things, and then uh, about fifteen years ago, got in got more involved in this uh, fundraising part of the startup scene. And I wrote my first business plan, and that was a success for the client, and I just got hooked on it. And um, so I've been doing consulting work in that arena ever since. And, and as you know, Joe, I'm very active in the Seattle area with many of the entrepreneur groups, uh, formerly the Northwest Entrepreneur Network. I, I, was, I love that organization. It's too bad it's not around anymore. Uh, but worked with them, um, you know, give lots of talks and lectures and just really enjoy uh, uh, sharing, you know, what I've learned with uh, founders who are on this path and and have never done this before and are kind of mystified by, well, how, how can I actually go ask somebody for money for my company? And the, you know, and I, what I like to do is demystify that and show how it works and how, um, uh, you know, and one other point here, back to the pitch, uh, you know, one of the things that investor, or one of the things that Entrepreneurs often lose sight of when they're even thinking about or pitching in to investors is to remember the investor viewpoint. To remember to think, put yourselves in, put yourself in the shoes of the investor, and think because the investor's primary question always is, "What's in it for me?" Uh, it's not. Mo- there are very few uh, investors who do it as a charitable uh, activity. They they want to know how are they going to get their money back. And that's, you have to focus, you know, if you don't have that as a, sort of the, the end-all point of your pitch, you're, you're missing out on making an impact on investors. Right. One thing, one thing you said uh, earlier, which I think uh, really resonates with me, is I think if you're a first time, you know, if you're, if you're trying to raise money for a private company for the first time, that's, that's when it can be like really especially difficult. And I, uh, it's a really smart move what you said before, which is, well, find somebody who can be a helper for you, uh, who's done it before, preferably many, many times. Because it's sort of like, uh, I joke with people, uh, I, imagine, I imagine it's like framing a house. I mean, if, if the three of us are dropped off at a job site and told to, <laughs> told to you know, give carpenter belts and told to frame a house, we'd be kind of stumped. But if we, we right. hung, out, hung out with people who are framing houses for the summer, I think by the end of the summer, we'd be you know, probably not great carpenters, but we could, we'd, know some, we'd know enough to hack away at the job. At least you could build your first house. So <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I don't know. So it's just super helpful. Whenever you've done anything for the first time, it's hard. Of course, Mike, when you built your first like iPhone app, it must have been, you know, very difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um you just gotta kinda gotta get in it. And uh yeah, at the time there weren't a lot of people that knew how to do it. So fortunately back then I I've been doing iPhone apps since since the SDK was originally released. So 
Oh wow! The the, the bar for uh, the bar for applications was low, so it'd be like learning to build a house. Like, but nobody has a very good house yet, so <laughs> so no one's looking at your house and saying that house is terrible. They're just saying, wow, that's a lot better than this hut that we used to live in. So, uh, yeah, it was it, it was a challenge, but uh, I a little bit different in a sense that um, nobody really knew what they were doing at that point. So it helped. Well, the the. The angel investing market is alive and well. You know what was it? Twenty-five billion the year last year, the year before, or down to maybe twenty-two billion. It's 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 a it's a significant uh, you know factor in our economy. And even though there may be ups and downs in terms of economic cycles, it's always there. There are always people starting companies. And so, in, you know, Joe, um, I also should mention, uh, you know, I, I my. Most of my background and experience is with uh, companies raising angel investment, and that's because that's been the, the chief source of funds uh, up until just recently. Uh, but now we've got um, you know equity crowdfunding that's come online, and I'm starting to see on a national level some companies starting to uh, you know raise money on equity crowdfunding portals. And my but the point I want to make is that the my my online tool here, the the minimum fundable company test is uh, applicable for crowdfunding as well uh, because presumably uh, crowdfund investors should have the same concerns that angel investors do. You know, is it a viable business? Does it look like it'll work? And how do I get my money back? Yeah, you know, we had uh, we had one of the founders of uh, WeFunder on the show a few weeks back, um, uh-huh. and that's a it is pretty exciting. I think, frankly, I think the equity crowdfunding is pretty exciting. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things going on in that in that arena that are great, and uh, so yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're uh, you're thinking about it and like how you might uh, help people in that arena. I I was uh, you know an obvious enthusiast for. Um, for equity crowdfunding for a long time, and then well, sure, and then I was concerned that the federal law wouldn't work because there was, you know, some 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 sort of technical sort of, you know, not very well done components of the law. But right now, it appears to me that um, you know it's it's launched and things are going well with Title Three, as far as I can tell. I think so too, and it'll it'll be interesting to see how this uh, plays out. If if uh, you know, we just have to have a few success stories and um, probably get some more traction. Have you uh, have you made any investments in any Title Three companies? No, I haven't. I was I was I was uh, I was thinking it would just be fun to just um, just you know you don't have to some of the companies the minimum purchase price is pretty small. I was thinking it would right. just be fun to buy you know buy into a half a dozen or so just to see kind of how the process worked and that's an interesting idea. I, I've looked at a few. I haven't seen any that I'm really excited about. <laughs> right, hey, but, Joe, but if you, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Where are you going? Where are you going to see that? Is that we? Does WeFunder have those we things Funder, on their site? There are several. Other, there are several other portals. I can't remember. The yeah, name. yeah. WeFunder is uh, WeFunder is one. Just W E F U N D E R. WeFunder is one, and uh, yeah, and there are others as well. But I was I I don't know. I'm excited, Brian. If you do if you do make some investments in it, uh, you know, through some crowdfunding portal, I'd love to hear about kind of what you experienced and kind of what your viewpoint on it is. Uh, I, I plan to just well, throw some money around just for fun, just to see how it, how 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 it goes. Well, you know, frankly, Joe, I think that that's uh, that may be the the uh, bottom line. That may be the motivation for a lot of people to do crowdfunding. They're not viewing it as a you know as a, a key part of their um, portfolio growth, <laughs> or they better not <laughs> anyway. Um, I think it's going to you know I think that cr- the crowdfunding. Companies who are doing equity crowdfunding will appeal to 
um, crowdfund investors because of um, I think it's going to be a little different than the normal high growth. I mean, there will be high growth, exciting companies who people will get excited because it's cool uh, right. and they want to be a part of it. But I think there are two two other categories of companies that will what will get traction here. Second one is there are companies that already have a community that are have a followers and are part of you know they have a community that's already developed around the business. For example, saw in the Seattle Times recently some uh, cupcake company who was raising fifty or hundred thousand dollars through equity crowdfunding because because they already had all these people buying their cupcakes or donuts and wanted wanted to say look we'd invest in you <laughs> so they said all right here's your chance. Yeah, there's an interesting thing about just I, I don't know if it scales as well for the small businesses doing crowdfunding, but there's a benefit to having your customers have a stake in your business. They uh, they become better uh, advocates. They maybe feel better about buying things. I, I don't know if you saw this week there was um, a thing in the news about T-Mobile. Um, yes. Their yes. CEO announced that they're going to be basically running a promotion where they give stock away to customers as like a bonus. Well, they give away um, they give away one share right now. It's about forty three dollars, I think. And yeah. so, but it's it, interesting. They're just buying the shares on the open market. They're already regulated, so it doesn't really present a lot of overhead for them. They don't have to. Yeah. Un- unlike a small business, if you want to give shares away in your cupcake company, it's kind of a big decision. But for them, it's pretty easy. But it's a smart move because uh, I don't know. I, I would imagine it would create some additional brand loyalty. Um, it's just it's an interesting interesting promotion. And I it, think so too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, then the, just to follow my finish my thought that you know, so I talk about the three. I think there's three types of businesses that will do well on, on equity crowdfunding. One is if, like I said, if it's cool. The other one is if there's a community already. Right. And the third one I think is if your business is uh, aligned with a social cause. So if there's some kind of social environmental, uh, you know, additional benefit from the business that you're operating that you're doing. Uh, I think people will invest in that just because they they want to help somehow, and so if there's some cause that people are uh, affiliated with, yeah, I you know one thing that's interesting about equity crowdfunding, Title Three equity crowdfunding, that I think I mean I didn't really anticipate as much is uh, is there's this whole concept of hey you're going to invest in in addition to getting a equity security you're going to have. Uh, also, some perks. So, if you invest in the local pub, you might get you know a, f- a free beer a week or something. Right. I mean, and actually, there's a that's a fairly I mean, the whole idea of getting a perk from the company you're investing in is actually a pretty significant part. I think it's going to be a pretty significant part of that that whole that whole investment uh, arena. Well, it's certainly yeah. <laughs> made, it's certainly been very viable in the uh, donation crowdfunding, like on Kickstarter and the like, because that's where that's what they do offer is some kind of perk. But I, I could see that working well in the equity uh, space as well, just as an add-on to your to your equity. Yeah, people right. want to know how they're going to get their money back, and you tell them that you're going to get it back in cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Over the next ten years, nope. you'll have you'll have cupcakes every week. Don't worry about the money; you'll get it back. And there may be a lot of people for whom that is perfectly adequate. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good uh, good thing to wrap up on, I, Brian. I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been really uh, really informative and. Um, once again, how can people find – what was the website again for people well, if they the, want to try the, to take the, the minimum – The uh, test is, is the Minimum Fundable Company Test, and it's mfctest.com. And also, I should mention, I didn't mention, but you know, the name of my company under which I do the consulting work is Funding Quest. And so if you just search Brian Brewer Funding Quest, you'll find me online as there as well. Awesome. Hey, hey, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Really, really fun talking to you. My pleasure, Joe and Mike, and uh, y'all have a great day, and uh, talk to you soon. Great, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you all next week.